We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning, and we're starting in verse 3, and we're going to work our way through verse 11. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you, have, uh, that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing you, because uh, it's true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we gather this morning under the banner of your name as your children, and we're so grateful um, for the work that you've done in our lives to bring us to a place where we would even want to hear your word. I know that was not true of me for so long in my life, and I'm sure it's not been true of many of us. And so this morning, God, I, th- I thank you. You've given us a desire to know you. Lord, I pray for those who have distant or cold hearts this morning, Lord, that you might warm them to the realities of your Son and all that he's done for us. God, would you speak to us now? Would you shape us into the people that you're longing to make here in this world? In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. I'm just curious, uh, do you think it's possible to really know if you're a Christian? Do you think it's possible to, like, really know for sure that you're a Christian? I mean, we just sang a song called Blessed Assurance, right? Can you truly be assured that you're saved? I mean, like, can you, like, really know that you really are a follower of Jesus? Like, how can you, how can you know that? Like, how can you really know? I think for many of us, we might say, well, I remember when I prayed a prayer one time, or I, I raised my hand, or I had this really awesome camp experience before, or I went to this event, and this thing happened, or I went to church on this day, and I experienced this, or I was alone in the mountains, and I had these thoughts, or I felt this thing. Or um, we, we assess our faith in ways like that often. And I think we even assess other people's faith in similar ways. We might say, how do you know if that person's a Christian? We might say, well, so-and-so says they're a Christian. So maybe they are, you know, they, they say they are. So how do we know if someone's a Christian or not? This is not at all what we are told we should be looking for here in this passage this morning. John shows us this morning that we should be looking for evidences and not experiences. That's what he says. We should be looking for evidences that we're Christians, not just exclamations that we are. 
I think one of the big questions of 1 John is really about assurance. And chapter 1 answers that question, how can I know I'm saved? How can I know I'm a Christian? With the answer, because my sins have been dealt with. How can I know I'm a Christian? It's because my sins have been dealt with. Look what Jesus went through on the cross for me. There's the evidence of the cross, right? That's how I can know I'm a Christian. But chapter 2 begins to tell us that the evidence that I can know that I'm a Christian or that my sin has been dealt with is that my life is beginning to change. I can know I'm a Christian because my life has changed. And chapter 2 is showing us this. See, Christianity is more than just words. I think you can almost sum up our passage today by saying actions speak louder than words to a degree. And as we compare chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 John, we see this idea, okay, that sin forsaken is one of the best evidences that my sin has been forgiven. That me actually living a life where I'm forsaking my sin, that's one of the best evidences that my sin has actually been forgiven. So how can you know? Well, God gives us a test, if you will, and some of you might be pumped up because you love tests right? Any personality test, you're all in or something, right? It's not a personality test. Some of you are terrified because you're like, is this a doctrinal test? Like, I don't know. I haven't brushed up on that in a long time. Don't worry. Dry your palms, okay? Uh, This is pretty easy because to answer this test or to do well in it, you just have to be honest. That's all you have to do, okay? So we see our passage begin with this statement, by this we know, by this we know that we have come to know him. So if you, if you want to know the roadmap for which we're headed this morning, you can see it here on the screen. See in verses 3 through 6, this evaluation. Verses 7 through 11, this evidence. And then verses 6 through 8, I want to show us the empowerment to live in this way. And I'm just going to give you a caveat right now. I know there's three E's up there. I'm pretty proud of myself, okay? This never, ever happens, so don't... I'm not setting a standard here, okay? It just once you see things you can't unsee it, just wrote it down, Okay? So um, it's not normally my my style, but we have it here, okay? Three E's, all right? The evaluation, verse 3. Let's let's read again verses 3 through 6. It's evaluation. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we are simply and clearly told, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So it is by obeying his commandments, God's commandments, that we may be sure that we know him. So ongoing assurance that we are people who know God is dependent upon ongoing obedience to his commands. Okay, well, what does this mean to actually know him? It's, it's actually a really important question. What does this mean to know God? Because it's actually a misunderstanding of this idea that's leading to the issues that are being addressed here in John, okay? This word know, it's used a crazy amount of times in John, and it means much more than just knowledge or much more than intellectual sense, uh, assent. It connotes relationship. This idea of knowing is about relationship. So I'll put it to you this way. I don't know if you know this about me yet, but um, I happen to know Chip and Joanna Gaines. Okay, I do. I know Chip and Joanna. Now, I'm sure with that information out there, you'd have some questions for me later, and that's fine. You can ask those follow-up questions. So you might come up to me later and say, wow, oh my gosh, I love Chip and Joanna. I love them. Tell me about them. And I might say, well, 
okay, um, Chip, he is such a goofball, you know, he's such a goof. And Joanna, you know, she just had another baby, you know, and I don't know how she does it, trying to keep up with her target line. And I heard, you know, I, she just told me the other day, you know, over video, yes, but she told me the other day that she's like redoing this, you know, this hotel in downtown Waco and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, you could say, I know them, right? You can say, I know them. And uh, you might follow up and say, yeah, that's cool, you know, Josh, I, I know that too about them, but like, tell me more about them. You know, like, what are they really like, you know, behind the scenes, you know? Is Chip, does he ever get grumpy? Is he grouchy in the mornings, you know? What about Joanna? Is she ever, does she ever get stressed out? What's she like? And then I would have to admit, I can make stuff up, okay? But I would have to admit at that point, you got me, right? I have to come clean. I don't know that about them, do I? And even more embarrassingly, if you were to ever meet Chip and Joanna Gaines, you're like, oh, yeah, I met a guy named Josh Howarth who knows you. Do you know Josh? They would say, who's that guy? You know, they have no idea that I even exist in this world. And I think many of us unconsciously think in terms of our relationship with God like this. You know, we can watch people from afar. We can gather information about them, all we want, and we can know crazy details about them that would actually creep them out if we were to meet them and just rattle off all these things that we know about them. You know, we can even feel, like in a real way, we can feel like we're a part of people's lives through information. But John isn't talking about knowing God in the way that I know Chip and Joe, okay? He's talking about a different kind of knowing, right? He's talking about relationship. So here we have it. We know that we have come to know God in a relationship-like knowing kind of way if what? If we keep His commandments, And this word keep means literally to look upon something as your treasure and to guard it as such. It's the idea of guarding something that's precious to you, right? It's essentially God's words, they're treasured by you. You love that you have them. You want to know them. You you live them. You protect them. They're, They're so valuable to you. They are life to you. They're a treasure that you guard. That's what this is telling you. So this doesn't mean, of course, that if you know God, you will never fail to obey God's commands. It's not what this means at all, but rather, if you know God, you and I will not be characterized by disobedience. That won't be what we were characterized by. So we're then told, if we do this, there's something great that happens. If we do this, the love of God is being perfected in us. That's what you see there in verse 5, right? It says, whoever keeps his word truly in this one, the love of God is being perfected. What does that mean? That sounds pretty nice, right? What does this mean? Well, this word perfected, it means brought to maturity. And it's actually in this uh, passive voice and expresses that it is God, it's not us, who perfects our love. But as we keep His commands, our love for God is being filled up. It's being brought into maturity. It's perfected. It's past tense. It's completed, right? It's, it's perfected. So to be very clear, this doesn't mean that As you obey God, God's love for you is brought to maturity. That's not what this is saying. No, we know from Scripture that God's love is not halfway. It's not have all these contingencies on it or something like that. If that were the case, I would never experience God's love, right? This is talking about our love that comes from God that's filled up and matured. So as you obey God, God's love is matured in you so that God's love is the grounds for how you live. So you're actually obeying out of love. This is why Jesus plainly says, if you love me, you will what? Obey me, right? So this really does shape how we understand this test or this evaluation. It's not simply a test of how good am I at keeping God's commands. 
And it's not, well, look at my life, and I look at your life, and I'm, I'm killing this obedience thing, you know? I'm doing way better than you, so I'm feeling pretty good right now about myself. I know. I know. I know him, right? And as I'm looking around this room, I'm probably one of the better ones, and so you might go around the room, and you might say, man, have you taken the First John 2, 3 test lately? Like, I've been, you know, me and you, I think you should take it, right? You should take it. I'm pretty good, though, Okay. Do you see here, when we get to this result, this result of our treasuring and keeping God's commands, the love of God is being perfected. Therefore, this evaluation is not merely about what we should be doing. It's also about the way in which we are to do it. This obedience is being done in love, not obligation, or in a self-seeking kind of way. I think we understand the difference between doing something because you have to or doing something out of love. I think we get this, right? Even this morning, if we were to dream up a list of, of, of qualities of a good husband and what he might do for his wife, we could come up with a long list, couldn't we? The list might include, you know, giving her a kiss every night, you know, or taking her on dates, or changing the diapers, or doing the dishes, or making dinner once in a while even, right? Or building her up with your words of affirmation, or staying faithful to her. That's a great one, right? Or considering her interest is more important than your own, or being the first one to confess your sin, or the first one to initiate reconciliation, right? We can go on and on a list. That'd be a great husband. Now, let's just say I want to be a good husband to my wife this week, and I take her out on a date. Things are going well. We're holding hands. We're driving, and she looks over at me, and she says, Josh, why? Why do you take me out on dates? And I look her in the eyes, and I say, it's my duty, right? So I'm supposed to do this. Do you think her heart's going to flutter with affection for me? Her heart is just going to soar. That's what I wanted to hear, you know, because you have to, right? How's the rest of my date going to go? Right? Did I just honor my wife or did I dishonor my wife? I dishonored her, right? Guys, we always function out of love. I don't know if you realize that. We always function out of love. But you might just obey someone, not because you love them, it's because you love something else. So you might obey a boss because you love your security in life. Or you obey your boss because you don't want to lose something else. Or you obey a friend. You do what they ask. Or you obey your spouse because of something you don't want to lose, because you love something else. So you obey out of fear. But it's still love because you love something else. You don't want to lose that thing. See, we obey out of love all the time, but often not out of love for them. And this is exactly what this is bringing up, that we do this out of love for God. It's being perfected. I bring this up because we get at the heart here of what obedience to God's commands is even for. It's so that our love for God will be brought into maturity. So this is the evaluation, okay? So there's a lot of commands to keep, you might say. Is this like an abstract thing? We just kind of go, I'm kind of doing well. I'm not doing as well. Like, how do we really know? Like, we, we kind of generally assess how we're doing often. But how do we really know if I'm a Christian? Well, this is a great question, and John wants to answer it. And so we get some definition here. We get some flesh and blood, real life, undeniable stuff here. We get the tangible evidence of this knowing union playing itself out in verse 7 through 11. Look at this evidence. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. This old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you because, or that, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him or in it, in the light, there is no cause for stumbling. But whomever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let me be really clear here, really, really careful here. We must be very careful and realize that obedience is not the means by which you are saved. Okay, I just want to be very clear. We must realize that obedience is not our avenue of salvation, but is the evidence of our salvation. We're saved by grace, not by works, but our lives reveal what's real. Like, like, a, fruit, like a fruit tree... You see the fruit, you know what kind of tree it is, right? And put it a different way, having big muscles is evidence that you work out, right? But having big muscles is not the way in which you work out. That doesn't make sense to us, right? It's the same thing with salvation. It's, it's a result, not a means to an end. That's what we see here. This isn't the means to the end, it's the evidence, right? It's the muscles, okay? The evaluation is that you'll obey God with a love for God. And the evidence of our knowing of God gets really specific here. It's not just that you'll obey and keep commandments. It's narrowed down to one specific commandment, and it's an old, new commandment. It's a commandment to love, right? So John's like zeroing in here. It's the difference of saying fruit and saying strawberries, you know, or fruit and apples, right? So John in verses 3 through 6 has said fruit, and then here he's saying strawberries, Right? Just so we can't rationalize things away and go, well, I'm pretty good at it. I'm pretty good at keeping commandments. Right? He's, he zeroes it in. He says, you will love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the evidence. That you will love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the strawberries. Right? This is family language, you guys. This is family language. The writer here might come across a bit confused or tripped up in his language when he says, this is an old commandment, but it's also new. And we're like, you can't have both. Like, what is it? Is it new or old? Well, what makes this new? Well, first, consider what it is it is referring to being old. Leviticus 19.18 says this. This was given a commandment to us long ago. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's a very old commandment, right? So for ages, God's people have been commanded and told that they are to love one another, okay? In other words, this isn't a new commandment, that I should love my neighbor. That's not new, okay? So what makes this new? Why does John say it's new? We get a hint at the newness of the commandment because it says this new commandment is what in verse 8? It's true in him. Who's him? Jesus. So what John's kind of doing here, he's saying, if you think of it as food, like you've eaten this meal before, but now it's made by a culinary wizard, right? That's what makes this new. Where's John getting this? Is he making up this new command? Is he like giving a different law here? No, he's getting this new command from the one he heard this message from, which we've talked about in chapter 1, verses verses 3 and verse 5 in chapter 1. He continually talks about what he's heard from him, Jesus, and he gives it to us. And so he's getting this command from Jesus, and Jesus talked about this same thing. We see this in the upper room discourse before Jesus goes to the cross, and he's telling his disciples these things. What does he say? 
before he headed to his death. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that's not new. That's old, right? But then he says what? Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, what makes this commandment new then? What makes this commandment new is the standard by which we are actually to love each other. So previously, we're told to love other people like we love ourselves, basically treat other people the way that you want to be treated. But here, Jesus is pressing in deeper. He's bringing about a greater standard or a greater definition here. He's saying, he's defining love, really, and he says that we are to love each other, not just as you want someone else to love you, not as yourself, but to love other people the way that I've loved you. We're to love each other the way that he's loved us. So the standard is in ourselves, the standard is Jesus. The definition is in us, the definition is Jesus. He says we are to love each other just as he has loved us, but how has Jesus loved us, you guys? What does Romans tell us, right? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps, maybe, for a good person, one would dare even die. But what? God shows his love. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while you weren't like, God, I love you. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Jesus, John 15, 13, Upper Room Discourse says what? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he doesn't just say... This new standard is that you love other people the way I've loved you. He's, he's giving definition to what even that love is, right? You see, Jesus defines love for us, and it's the exact opposite definition of our modern definition. He says true love is an affirmation for another person to go and do whatever it is they want to do. It's like someone has something in their mind they want to do, and no matter what it is or how good or bad or how destructive it is, we just go, well, I love you, I affirm you. That's modern love. That's not what this is. It's not found in self-centered freedom. It's found in death to self. The world's definition of love is to affirm the desires and actions of another person or adoring another person as they meet my needs. A modern definition of love is I love you if... If you affirm me, if, if you do this for me, I'll love you. If you don't do that for me, I'm taking it back. But Jesus' definition of love, if I'm to love you the way he's loved me, is to lay my life down for you. It's death to self. It's actually, I love you, end of sentence. It's I love you, period. Right? There's no qualifications for you to have to affirm me in order for me to love you. You don't have to meet my needs for me to love you because I've died to me. And if I'm a walking dead man... See, love doesn't ask, what do I want? If you love me, do this, I'll love you back. Jesus' love is asking, in what ways can I die so that you can live? That's Jesus' love. So do you, do you see how radical this is? I mean, just think about this, guys. Jesus isn't calling us or commanding us or inviting us into a life where we love other Christians who just think the way that we do or voted the way that we do or dress like we do 
or enjoy all the same things that we do or seamlessly fit into my life, whether that's culturally or season of life or whatever. We are called to love all Christians like Jesus has loved us, but not just by merely putting up with them, but by laying down our lives for them. It's death to self for the sake of the other kind of love. Like, like I hope in a way this feels challenging because it, it is. It like really is. It's extremely challenging. And I'm sorry to tell you, but there's no caveats here. There's like none. This is the newness of the command. It doesn't just say, I'll love you as I love myself. It's I'll love you in the way that I've been loved by Jesus. And herein lies the sobering test. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. If I'm saying I've been loved by Jesus and I hate you, I'm in the dark. This is uh, really striking. It's meant to be. Living in the light is, is loving Jesus' people. And so hating your brother or sister whom Jesus loves and died for is living in the darkness. And this word hating is this ongoing present tense word. It's, it's ongoing. It's a continuous thing. It's holding on to the hatred of another. And you might go, well, that's a strong word. I don't hate anybody. I'm a really nice person, you know? I don't say mean things to people or whatever it is. But hatred is simply just wishing or even hoping the worst for somebody. It's having ill will towards somebody. It's, it's actually rejoicing and being glad when someone else falls. Right? It's, it's, it's standing against someone. You don't always have to come up with this strong language that says, I hate you to hate somebody. It could manifest itself in indifference, really. And I don't think we often realize the depth of our hatred or even the hints of our hatred when we swim in a world where hatred is normal and even encouraged amongst the communities that we run in. See, if you keep living this kind of way while claiming to know God, you are told that you are still in darkness, that you walk in darkness. And we are told this morning, if this is us, if we are holding on to hatred, we don't know where we're going and our eyes have been blinded. That's what verse 11 tells you. Just think how embarrassing it is if we are blind and stumbling along, and yet we think we can see. I, I took our kids to um, I took our kids to Leopold Farms yesterday. Okay, maybe some of you have been there. Pumpkin patch, you know it's fall. You kind of have to do that, right? So we took them there, and uh, they wanted to go in the dark maze. So I took them in the dark maze. Everybody been in the dark maze before, Leopold? Some people. Me and a bunch of kids. Great, awesome. I'm just kidding. Uh, so the kids wanted to go in. They were really pumped. They were really pumped. And um, I was like, all right, let's go. And we went in there, and they were terrified immediately and just latched onto me and were like, I don't know, and this is terrible. And, you know, just I had to, like, try to reason with them, like, it's going to be okay, you know, that kind of thing. And one other family went ahead of us, and they just turned on their flashlight on their phone and walked ahead. And they were like, can we do that? And I was like, no, that's defeating the whole point. It's a dark maze, right? Not a light maze. Like, we're not going to do, we're not going to be those people, okay? We're going to do this thing. And so they held on to me, and I'm like, I can't see a thing. You can't see your hand in front of your face. I'm just feeling the wall, you know, trying to not injure myself, trying to injure them. I'm trying to protect them. And what we're doing, we're feeling our way through this maze, and we're trying to find the light, right? We're feeling our way towards the light. So something really interesting, though, is I know that I can't see, right? I know that I'm, like, blind, right, in this moment, 
I'm just trying to feel my way towards the light. I know that I'm in darkness, but if I don't know that I can't see, and I think I can see, and I just start running through that maze, I'm going to get pretty messed up, aren't I? Right? That's not going to go well for me. I'm going to stumble, and someone's going to say, what happened? You're like, I don't know. I just fell. Because I can't see, but I think I can. It's, it's actually pretty an embarrassing thought here. We see in these verses. That's the sad part. It's walking in the dark maze and thinking, I can see. But the result of abiding in the light, verse 10, there's no cause for stumbling. So we have these three evaluations or the evidences for us that are really clear to us, more so in the original languages than our English translations. But I just want to show this to you really quick. We see these uh, evaluations of evidences really quick. It says, verse 4, whoever says. Verse 6, whoever says. Verse 9, whoever says. Verse 4, must obey. Verse 5, must walk as he did. Verse 9 and 10, must love. So what you're meant to see here. And so this is what we see if you follow that train of thought. To know Jesus. To know him. Like really know him. Not Chip and Joanna Gaines, no, right? To obey him. To live in Jesus is to live like Jesus. To live like Jesus is to love all those who belong to Jesus. John doesn't say that we know, that we know God by our commitment and devotion to the Bible, or to prayer, or by our moral conduct, or by how frequently we share the gospel, or by our doctrines or creeds. It's, it's this. So what do we do now? I mean, you're sitting here this morning... Maybe you're a little bit convicted. I've been very convicted this week. What do you do? Do you go, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to love that person, right? Maybe you're a little inspired. Maybe not. I have no idea where you're at. But what are you thinking right now? All right, maybe you are like, all right, I'm going to start loving so-and-so better, right? I'm going to do a good job, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love. Let's do this, you know, and you get all pumped up even, you know? But then what happens? You wake up tomorrow. What happens? You actually have to talk to that person again. And then what do you feel? That excitement just goes, you know? It's like starting off on a road trip. You're all pumped up, and you get a couple miles in. You're like, let's go home, you know? <laughs> What's going to sustain you day in and day out? What's going to do that for you? What's going to empower you to love like Jesus every day? And not just start with a lot of steam and get into the week and go, what was I thinking, right? There's some power here, verses 6 and 8. But first notice in verse 3, it says, we can know that we know him if we keep his commands. Then in a parallel way in verses 4 and 5, it says, John says that we can be sure that we, and look, it doesn't say know him, but it says are in him. We can be sure that we are in him by whoever says they abide in him, will walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And also notice how you love your brother in verse 10. What does it say? Abide in the light. In this light, there's no stumbling. There's also this abiding language and this in him language everywhere. Do you see this? Knowing God is equated here to being in him. So if you know him, you're in him. This is union language. This is location language. This is really the key to understanding where you get this empowerment from, to actually love like this and not burn out all the time. Now, to be fair, this is a really hard idea to get your head around. I mean, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does that mean, to be in Him? 
What does it mean to be in anyone, for that matter? I mean, if somebody tells me I follow Jesus, I get that, okay? If someone tells me they're under Christ, I know what that means to be under someone. If someone says they're saved by Jesus, sure, yeah, I get that, right? Or if they're inspired by Jesus, check, right? I got that one too, okay? These are concepts I get, Jesus as a leader, as a Lord, as a Savior, but in Christ, in Him, that seems to portray like language, like location language kind of stuff, right? Like, I'm in Dexter McCarty Middle School right now. That makes sense to me. So how does this work? Well, it's actually not our normal way of thinking about Jesus, but it's really, really important, okay? So just go with me here for a second. Imagine you're at the airport today. You're over at PDX, and you're about to get on a plane, okay? You're about to get on a plane, and uh, you're like, man, summer just flew by, and I'm not ready for winter. So uh, I'm off to Maui. Okay, I'm going to go off to Maui. So the plane that you're about to board is on its way to sunny Maui, and Maui is where you want to be, okay? Let me just ask you a really dumb question. What kind of relationship do I have to have with the plane as I'm getting ready to board it? To get to Maui, what relationship do I have to have with the plane? Would it help to be under the plane, to submit myself to the plane's authority and the whole flying to Maui thing? Would that be helpful? Would it be helpful to be inspired by the plane, to basically watch the plane fly off and go... I hope to do that too someday, you know? What about following the plane, right? I see the direction the plane goes, and I watch, and I'm, like, taking notes that way, okay? Over there, okay? Of course, the key relationship that I need to have with the plane is to not be under it, behind it, or inspired by it. I need to be in it, right? i got to be in the plane. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane is going to also happen to me. Right? So if someone asks, did you get to Maui? You can answer that question by asking the question, did the plane get to Maui? The plane got to Maui, and I'm in the plane. I got to Maui, didn't I? Right? At the heart of all this, the idea of being in Him, in Christ, is something like that. According to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with Jesus, whatever is true of Him is now true of me. And it's going to become even more so. He died. And my faith, by faith, I've died with him. Right? The old Josh is gone. He was raised. We've been raised to walk in newness of life, right? He's vindicated. We will be vindicated. You'll be vindicated. For all those times people have wronged you, right? He is loved. Then we are loved, and so on. All because we are in him. That's the idea. It's kind of simple. It has really profound implications. And so the implication here in 1 John is not only that what has happened to Jesus has happened to you in a justification kind of sense, but when you are in Christ and you abide in Jesus, which is what you see all over the place here, when you make your home in him, when he's your location, right, who Jesus is will spill out of you. You'll walk in the way he walked. Who Jesus the plane is, it'll be influencing and shaping and coming out of you. That's what's going to happen. It says you must walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the key. That's the power. But yes, that sentence means to follow Jesus' example. But that isn't all that empowering because our issue, our problem is not just merely needing an example, is it? I don't hate people because I lack inspiration. I hate people because there's something wrong with me. I'm abiding in the wrong thing. My location's off. Right? When I'm hating, I'm not merely doing that because I, I need some inspiration. It's revealing that my location has moved. 
I'm not on the Jesus plane. I've, I've decided to do some skydiving. I've taken a layover, right, in, in some other airport. That's what I've done. When I, when I hate, I'm abiding in a different story that maybe says, you know what, I don't deserve this. You know, I've done X, Y, and Z for that person, and that's how they respond to me. I don't have to love them. And then when I have other Christians that are saying, yeah, yeah, you don't deserve that. See, many of us feel an inability to love because we get off the plane. We aren't abiding, and we stop for a long layover in places that shape us with the advice and counsel of so many people that says we should love people with contingents. We take layovers then in the airports that say, I love you if sort of stuff. That's what we do. You and I fail to remember and abide in the reality that Jesus' example wasn't just something we witnessed from afar and said, that's inspirational. No, his example is experiential for us. He loved me. He loved me. And the way that he walked was willingly to a cross for me. See, look at Jesus. He laid his life down for you. When you've had very different values than him, he laid his life down for you when you had very different standards than he does. He loved you at great cost to himself when you've been way more conservative than him or way more liberal than him. When, when, when you were culturally different than he was or you were definitely in a different social class, I mean, he was reigning in heaven. And yet he loved you. He didn't get you back. He didn't pay you back. He didn't distance himself from you and wait till you would come groveling. He drew near. And let us never forget that Jesus has loved that person that you find it impossible to love. He laid his life down for them. And seeing that brings a conviction upon our hearts to follow in his footsteps. That means we will love our spouses then when our spouses wrong us. We feel like they're in the wrong and they're the ones that need to change because we see that Jesus wasn't the one who needed to change. We were. And yet he still loves us. You'll love your, your kids when your kids defy you and disobey you for the hundredth time, even when your intentions for them are really good. We see how we defy Jesus for the thousandth time, yet he laid his life down for us and now are laying our life down for our kids and not shaming them, but restoring them points to Jesus. We'll love our coworkers or our roommates or our colleagues or our friends or our family or even backstabbing friends and family when they wrong us. We don't wait for them to humble themselves and move towards us because Jesus continually moves towards you on a daily basis so that you can lovingly move towards the people most difficult to love. See, if I abide in Jesus and verse 8 tells me very specifically that this new commandment of love is true in him, it's true in him, then if I am positionally in him and I daily am making my home in him, then I am being fed something different. There's an intoxication in Jesus' realm that influences how I view everything. The ongoing experience of Jesus' love for you empowers you to love people who've denied you or are different towards you who betrayed you, who don't see the things that you, the way that you do, why? Because I've boarded a different plane by faith. 
And now it's my hope to day in and day out abide in His love towards me. Guys, this is the evidence. This is the evidence. Let's end with this. Do you see the result of us being people who love one another? We can't miss this. Verse 8. This commandment's true in Jesus and in His believers, and as a result, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. See that in verse 8? Darkness is passing away. So obeying God's commands finds its truest expression in Jesus and in us, and the author says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. What about you, but do you feel hopeless about the world? Do you feel like darkness is increasing? the opposite here, right? It's actually passing away. And we, that happens when we shine this light by embracing this old new commandment. Is this the way that you see the world? That darkness is passing away. That the true light is already shining. As we love one another in the same way that Jesus loved us, this pushes back the darkness. This affects the world around us. This is what we are known by. This is the evidence very popularly, many years ago, uh, there was a guy named Tertullian. He's a church father, lived in the third century. Not a really popular baby name now these days, Tertullian. I don't hear of any Tertullians in the church here, I guess. Um, if you do, it's a cool name. Uh, but he lived and wrote in a time when opposition to Christianity was intensifying. And although he was an apologist and he devoted himself to defining and defending the faith, he was quick to point out that it wasn't any particular theological or philosophical argument that would ultimately persuade non-Christians of the truth about Jesus, right? It wouldn't push the darkness back. Rather, it was seemingly inexplicable love that Christians had for one another that initially baffled and finally captivated non-Christians. And this is what he said in one memorable statement. He says, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us See, they say, referring to people who don't know Jesus, see how they love one another, how they're ready even to die for one another. There, there that is again, right? No tragedy causes trouble in our brotherhood and the family possessions, which generally destroy brotherhood among you, create fraternal bonds among us. One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us except our wives. It's a good caveat right there, Right? <laughs> I love these, like, just to be clear, okay? We don't do that, okay? But do you see this? The true light is shining. How do people love like that? It's because they know they've been loved like that. It's not merely example. It's an example I've, I've lived. It's my story. It's my experience. The world recognized them by their love. Burke Parsons uh, famously said, unbelievers don't read the Bible, they read us. This is the evaluation and the evidence. To put it simply, how do I know I'm a Christian? It's because my life is changing. I'm loving people I don't normally love. I'm loving people I didn't think I could. The true light is already shining. The darkness is passing away because this new evidence of love is true in Jesus. And may it be true in us too. Let's all stand together as we pray.
God, I just pray this morning for, for those in this room that may be struggling right now to even believe that you love them. Lord, I pray that they would look to the cross, that they would know, God, that you do. Lord, help us to know and to see how you've loved us and how loved we are in you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that that would just break down all these walls that we build up between one another, that we would be people who are known by our love for each other, that we would walk in this light and that the darkness would keep passing away. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. This morning, guys, as we go into our time of communion, as you come to the table, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. And as we come today, we, we know that this meal is a, is a meal of remembrance. And that this morning as we come, we are remembering not just that I'm loved, but the way in which we have been loved through the self-giving love of our Savior. And may our prayer this morning be that as we take this meal, that it would symbolize our unity amongst all believers. And may love be the reality that we experience here as a result. So I invite you to come to the table now as a response.